I'm Elle Kamihira and welcome to Subject to Power. First, I want to thank all of you who have downloaded this podcast. It makes me insanely happy to know that people are listening, and I'm grateful for every one of you. So thank you. On to the show. Women, in particular young women, receive a lot of cultural messages about selling our bodies. We're told that sex work is work, that charging money for sex is an act of empowerment, that using our sexuality as a means to economic independence is a choice. My guest today, Swedish journalist, author, and culture critic Kaisa Ekis Ekman, has looked very deeply into not only prostitution, the selling of sex, but also surrogacy, the selling of procreation, and wrote a book about it called Being and Being Bought. One of my favorite things about Kaisa is that she's fearlessly outspoken about gender, class, politics, and between her thorough reporting and extraordinary overview, she's seriously fun to talk to. And we do get into all the things. Hope you enjoy. There's so much fascinating history of prostitution as a phenomenon and as an industry, and also surrogacy as a phenomenon and an industry. A time when both of these things are being very normalized and sort of mainstreamed. And as a documentarian, I'm always interested in the point of view of who's telling the stories. So in, in your book, Being and Being Bought, you talk about how our view of prostitution has evolved over time and how we're now in a place where it's being sold, you know, sort of as an empowerment tale and a respectable choice. But you also go into who's actually telling the story or promoting this narrative. So you want to talk about that a little bit? Yes. Well, in my book, I kind of outline history of prostitution and also how prostitution has been defended over the years, over a span of 150 years or so. Whereas back in the days when there was a system called reglementation of prostitution in most countries of Europe, actually, it was defended as being normal. It was defended as being natural, that men just had that desire. And if they couldn't go to prostitutes, they would start raping innocent and decent women and marriages would fail. So there needed to be a class of prostitutes to service these men. And how those women were explained in books and in studies, in academic studies by criminologists and hygienists were in the way that they were biologically inferior. So that's why they were unfit to do anything else but to be in prostitution. Now, that system was ended in the beginning of the 20th century. It was found by the League of Nations that it led to trafficking. So when prostitution started exploding again in the 90s due to lots of different factors, mainly the fall of the Soviet Union, poverty in Eastern Europe, trafficking took off again, and the porn industry fueled the new prostitution. Now we have a different story. So obviously we cannot use that old way of defending prostitution. So we have a story basically that's saying not that prostitution is natural and normal, but that prostitution is subversive, revolutionary, and not that prostitutes are biologically inferior, but that they are actually morally superior. They are empowered women. They do what they want. They know what they want. They are challenging traditional morality. So basically, the system is the same, but the way of defending it has changed drastically. It's basically the opposite, which I find very fascinating because the institution of prostitution is the same. It hasn't changed at all. A brothel today looks basically the same as it did 100 years ago. 
Yeah, that's great. I mean, you you write that prostitutes are presented sort of a, as an ideal agent of our times, commanding rational individual who makes her own decisions, who's like fantastically strong and invulnerable. So we're moving away from the stigma of prostitution, but towards a duality, which you say to mean the prostitute self and the real self. Can you talk about the the split self in the context of prostitution, the way you lay out? Yeah, well, the interesting thing is that back in the days, 100 years ago, one was talking about prostitutes as having fallen. You know, they failed, so they were morally inferior. But you didn't have this duality. I mean, there was kind of totality to that thing. You just fell as a person, as a body. There was nothing like, you know, you on one hand and the body on the other hand. Whereas now, when you have the new narrative, which is she's strong, she's a feminist, she is not sold, she's selling then what then is being sold? Well, then you have the body turning into a kind of object. So she, on one hand, is said to be the seller, but the body or sexual services, on the other hand, is said to be what's sold. So she's kind of like divided into two people. One that is a rational agent that's just sitting there, you know, counting her bills, putting an ad on the internet. And then you have the body, which has no free choice. You know, the body just does whatever the individual's say that the body have to do. And I find that narrative very disturbing because it fits so well into the defense mechanisms used in prostitution, which are basically universal. You can find them in any testimony from prostitutes back in the days, nowadays, any country, you know, it doesn't matter whether the person is, you know, a sex work proponent or whether the person is a survivor of prostitution, they tell the same story. And that story is a story of having to alienate yourself, having to dissociate yourself from what you're selling. And this has been documented by researchers from the 70s and onwards. And they found it very interesting. There's always something in prostitution that is not being sold. So basically every person in prostitution tries to defend herself from the act of selling herself by saying, for example, I don't kiss or you don't touch my arms or I don't do this, for example. So you're trying to maintain some self that's yours, whereas you're alienating the part that is being sold. So that defense mechanism that the body I'm selling is not mine, I'm turning it into a kind of object. I lose my way of feeling when I sell myself. I detach. Maybe I am trying to think of something else during the act so as not to feel. Maybe I take drugs or drink alcohol so as not to feel or I have different kind of mechanisms to protect myself from this. And so this new sex work narrative fits right into that. What it's saying is detachment is good. Detachment is the only way to survive because you are not that body that's being sold. You are just an active agent doing the selling. And I find that so disturbing because basically what it is, is glorifying dissociation. And dissociation, as we know, it has very serious effects. I mean, Somebody who spent many years in prostitution often suffers from PTSD and often even loses the ability to feel certain parts of her body. Yeah. Thank you. So also a a super common uh, way to sort of rationalize prostitution is to compare it to other work, other physical work, factory work, Mm -hmm. waitressing, and that that with this new term sex work, it's supposed to be you know, sex work is real work. It's on par with all these other sort of physical labors. What do you say to that? Well, first of all, I think, you know, just looking at 
the real facts of prostitution. You know, there is no job in the world that has the death rate, the mortality rate that prostitution has, where the mortality rate is 40 times higher for women in prostitution than for women outside of prostitution. And it's actually safer for women to be homeless and a drug addict than to also be a prostitute. So I think that tells you something about no matter how much you twist and turn the rhetorics about it, this is about lives. This is about the fact that when you are in prostitution, your life is often very short. So not normalizing prostitution and making it into work is saving women's lives. That, I think, is the most important thing to keep in mind, because we can be arguing sophistically whether this or that. But at the end of the day, this is what we're talking about. The women deserve to live or not. And then I think also what's interesting is that when you compare it to other jobs, you're forgetting that what is sex supposed to be in our lives? Like, why do we have sex? It's to enjoy it. It's because it makes us feel good. The other thing is to reproduce. But I think most sexual acts do not result in, in reproduction. You know, people do it because they like it. Now, here we have a situation where one person likes it and the other person doesn't, where the person, the, the customer, the person who's paying is enjoying himself and the person who's selling does not enjoy it. But that's where the money comes in. If she did enjoy it, she wouldn't charge. And that's why I always say, like, you can ask any diehard defender of prostitution, okay, so you can take the money right now and you can leave, or you can stay for the sex. How many do you think are going to stay for the sex? I mean, nobody's going to stay for the sex because she's not there for the sex. She doesn't enjoy the sex. She's there for the money. So I think, you know, that's where the difference comes in. Like, what is sex supposed to be about? Why does sex exist? You know, does it have to exist? When you talk about other jobs, it's because these are things that need to exist in society. When you talk about cleaning, for example, we need to have cleaners. If nobody cleaned, how would it look? Nobody's doing cleaning because they enjoy it. The point is that you have to clean because it's a necessary thing to do. Now, in talking about sex as work, we're getting the idea that sex somehow is necessary, but only for one person who happens to be a man with money. For him, apparently, this is necessary, but for her, she has to sacrifice her own desire for his wishes. And I think that's a very strange way of looking at it. You know, if we ended prostitution today, we would only have the sex that we actually wanted to have. And what's so dangerous about that? What's so threatening about that? Why are people defending paid sex, which is essentially sex that one person doesn't want? So if you're going to ask me what prostitution is, I can say prostitution is a dick going where it's not welcome. Yeah. You also talk about when you as a prostitute have obviously have sex many times a day and mechanization occurs naturally, which just is the opposite of what the buyers wants. He wants a woman who acts as if she isn't working, who's horny, turned on, sensual and into him. You have this great metaphor that the man who buys sex wants all form of touch to be for sale, but then the touch loses its charm because it's routine and he turns elsewhere like a tourist who hates mass tourism. Can you talk about, yeah, can you talk about that? Well, I think if you look at the development of prostitution, what happened was when trafficking took off and when you have trafficking, you have basically an encounter between two people who don't speak the same language at all. So there's minimal talking. There is no kind of sensuality or even like kind of mental contact there because they don't speak the same language. She's basically locked up in a place and there is like 10 other men waiting in line. I mean, not all sex buyers are psychopaths. Some are, but not all. And I think maybe some of them thought this is very routine. They know she's not there because she likes to be there. 
and they want something more and they're willing to pay for that thing. And also that thing, what they're paying for when they turn to things like, you know, rent the girlfriend, girlfriend experience, sugar dating sites, and all these kind of other forms of prostitution is they're paying more to get the illusion that she actually is enjoying herself because it makes them feel better about themselves. So what they're asking her to do is a lot harder for her because all these defense mechanisms that I'm talking about, like keeping time limit, not engaging emotionally with the customer are impossible. Because if you go on a site like Rent a Girlfriend, like you go to a place like Costa Rica and then you can rent a girl for a week and she's supposed to dine with you and have a shower with you and talk to you and relate emotionally to you, but all time is paid time. So she has to fake a lot more than the victim of trafficking has to do because she has to fake that she likes it. And I think deep down, they're trying to fool themselves, like the, the buyers trying to fool themselves that this isn't at all like, like prostitution. So they want sex, of course, on their terms, but they also pay more for her to pretend. And they are so naive sometimes. I mean, if you look at the forums, when I wrote the book, I went into these forums of sex buyers where like they, they say stuff like, oh, she came three times. And, you know, I'm like, do you, do you guys actually believe this? Yeah. But they actually want to think that. I think deep down they would know that she didn't come three times. She probably faked three times. But the toll, I mean, it's a lot harder on the woman because she has to involve emotionally. That's right. I mean, a lot of rape victims say they survived thanks to disassociation and shutting down. Mm -hmm. And that mm -hmm. that's like a integral part of surviving an assault is exactly the ability to do that. And that's what mm -hmm. you're asked not to do. Yeah. Or demand not to do. You also say something else that an act of prostitution is like splits her, but makes him whole. And I thought that was kind of profound. Yeah, because he goes there and he thinks, okay, well, I am the work. I have two hours. I'll go and pay for sex and then I'll go back to my family. And he leaves that world and he feels great but she lives in that world. And this, I think, is very interesting when it comes to like what you said before about stigma, because generally like sex work proponents will say, oh, you know, the only problem with prostitution is the stigma. Like if that weren't there, like it would be just like any normal job. Whereas we know sex is not just like any normal thing because it involves feelings. It's like one woman that I interviewed that is in prostitution. She said, well, you know, if it really was work, you would just be there would be a big room full of mattresses and you would be jerking off some guy while he was watching a porn movie. And then he wouldn't be allowed to touch you because you're just doing a job, right? So there could be like old men there jerking these guys off. You wouldn't have to look a certain way. You wouldn't have to even be a woman or be a certain age or put makeup on because you would just be doing something. Like that's what work is about. It's like you perform some action. But what he's buying is the actual person. He wants her to be you know, a certain sex, certain age, look a certain way. He's very specific about those things and he prefers them with less experience. So the highest paid is the virgin, not the experienced, which is kind of contradictory, you know, if it wouldn't be a job. So basically what I was getting to is what I realized like way later after I wrote the book was that in countries that have the Nordic model or the abolitionist model, which actually punishes sex buyers and not people who sell sex, you have really seen a drastic change around stigma because I don't believe stigma comes from us feminists condemning prostitution. Stigma is an essential part of prostitution because the idea of prostitution is that a man will just have sex with a woman, but he's not interested in anything more. Like he doesn't want to have a child with her. He doesn't want to marry her. He would never bring her home to his parents and say, this is my girlfriend. Oh, what do you work with? Oh, well, I'm a prostitute. Like, so basically he's just paying her 
not only to have sex, but basically paying her to be able to leave after sex and not suffer any consequences, right? So but what I have noticed is that in Sweden, now we have 20 years with this law, punishing sex buyers. I mean, before that, prior to this law, we didn't have a single survivor of prostitution speaking out publicly. If there was a survivor interviewed, she would be anonymous, like you wouldn't see her face or you wouldn't know her real name. Now we have about 20, 30 women in Sweden speaking out with their names, with their history. They don't have that shame anymore. So I think the stigma has been actually transferred to the buyer because we've also had public figures being caught sex buying. And they, you can really tell that this is a shameful thing. Like they lose their jobs, other contracts. People are really taking a distance from them. They're like canceled in a way. Whereas in Germany, where you have all sectors of prostitution being legal from 2003. You have two women in prostitution, two survivors being public. And this knowing that there are like close to 600,000 when I wrote the book, probably like 1 million today, women in prostitution that are entering and exiting Germany all the time. And there are 82 million people in Germany and one in four of the men are sex buyers. So you would have a lot more people in prostitution but you don't see them going public. Why then, if this legalization would reduce the stigma, why is that not happening? And why is it happening in Sweden? I've realized that it's a total opposite. If you want to reduce stigma, you have to place it somewhere else. And that would be on the sex buyer. Yeah, very interesting. Very interesting. We're very far far behind in the US when it comes to prostitution laws. I don't think they're importing the Nordic model here anytime soon. Well, I think, you know, the survivors organizations in the U.S. are advocating for the Nordic model. The problem is the feminist movement and and the left wing movement is not supporting them enough. So why could we have that law here in Sweden? Because we had not only the feminist movement and, of course, the socialists and the left wing being behind the law 100 percent. But we also had like civil society, trade unions, lots of organizations that were just behind that law because we found it inhumane to sell people in the 21st century. But in the U.S., this idea of sex work has really taken hold. So which means that the left and basically the whole society is turning their backs to the suffering of women in prostitution. I wanted to move on to you make, obviously, a connection between prostitution selling sex and surrogacy selling procreation or selling... Yeah. Selling um, children, as I would say. Yeah, I'm selling children. Yeah. Well, you know, when I wrote the book, it was kind of early in the surrogacy debate. I was looking around the world for feminists who had been opposing surrogacy. And I found lots of feminists from the 80s around like the Baby M case, if you remember, that was very publicized in the U.S. And there had been many organizations opposing surrogacy, but that had kind of died down. And here in Sweden, it was like even the left party and even like the gay movement, feminists, you know, they were like pro-surrogacy because this was about everyone's right to have a family. And when I was suggesting there was a kind of link to prostitution or that you could compare it to prostitution, I mean, they were appalled. They were saying, well, you know, what does this have to do with it? You know, all of a sudden, everybody knew that prostitution was shady. When I was only talking about prostitution, nobody agreed that it was shady. But now when I talked about surrogacy, everybody said, hey, hey, nothing to do with prostitution. We all know that's bad. Oh, you do? Okay. You know, but no, surrogacy, it's about having a child is beautiful. And I would go on shows and there would be like a gay couple there with their newborn baby and look how cute it is, you know, and then they would turn to me and say like, and you're against all this. And I'd be, I'm not against the actual baby, but I do think the baby has a right to meet his or her mother. 
because surrogacy is basically producing motherless children. It's about turning women into reproductive machines to have children in pregnancies that are no way near normal pregnancy because what you go through in surrogacy is, first of all, you lose the right to your own body. You sign a contract. Even in the developed countries, the contract is very far-fetching. So the contract stipulates, you know, what you can and can't do during your pregnancy. For example, if you want to have an abortion, that can be seen as a breach of contract. If you don't want to have an abortion, if, you know, the couple demands it, that can also be seen as a breach of contract. If you end up in coma, it's not even your family that decides on life-sustaining equipment. It's the intended parents because they own the baby that you carry. So they're the ones that decide whether to keep you alive until they can take out the baby by cesarean. Some contracts even say you may not paint your nails, uh, you may not travel, all travel has to be authorized by us, you may not breastfeed your own babies during this time. And I mean, so basically it's about handing over the power over your own body to another couple. So you go through that pregnancy and then you just give the baby away, you never see it again. I mean, if, if you've like ever been a mother or been a child, you know there is a link there. And that's now being just shunned for money. They're like, oh, we don't care. There is no connection. She's just like an oven. They don't even see her as a human being with feelings. So they don't allow her to like feel something for the baby. She's just something that's going to produce. And then they put on, you know, not to make it look like the cynical industry that it is. They put on all this propaganda about how she's an angel and she's such a great person and so generous and so altruistic for doing this, you know, and they love her and oh, what a great person she is. But that's just fluff because in reality, all they want from her is to use her as, as a reproductive machine. Yeah, exactly. It's the ultimate exploitation, I think. And like you say, you know, with sex or with prostitution, you know, you provide a sexual service. And there isn't a product per se, but with surrogacy, there is a very tangible product, the baby. So can you talk about, and obviously anyone on the neoliberal side will not equate this with human trafficking, but how is it not? Yeah, I don't see how it's not either because, you know, what are you paying for? Well, you're paying for a baby. I read when I wrote my book, I was reading all this these philosophers. I don't know why it comes to when in prostitution, the academics who defend prostitution are usually anthropologists, whereas those who defend surrogacy are usually philosophers. So they would twist and turn all the arguments to explain why surrogacy is not baby trade. They would say, for example, oh, you're not actually buying a baby, you're buying a service, which is pregnancy. Well, you know, if she was just pregnant and then she kept the baby, they wouldn't pay her, obviously. They're paying for her to like pronounce the baby and give it to them. And or some would say, no, we don't sell uh, babies because babies cannot per se be be owned. You don't own another human being. So therefore, uh, it's not baby trade. What we're selling is a bundle of limited parental rights. You know, blah, blah, blah. Okay, mm -hmm. you know, what I see here is it's just pathetic how they try to defend it because in reality then per se, slave trade or human trafficking could never exist today because technically you can't own another person. Although we know that it does exist. So I find it very interesting how like now we have this critique of adoption. Lots of people who have been adopted are criticizing adoption and also highlighting the inequalities in the adoption industry and how basically women have been pressured to give up their babies. They manufacture orphans that are not really orphans. So it's all kind of like demand driven from not only rich people, but like middle class people in the West who basically are childless or want to feel good and want to help other people. And now we're turning to surrogacy, which is in, in a lot of ways even worse because 
you're not even like pretending you're helping an orphan. You're actually manufacturing orphans or motherless children. And I mean, I don't understand how it can go together with like the convention on the rights of the child, because according to that convention, children have a right to their parents. And now nobody's even interested in investigating whether the mother, whom they call a surrogate, but I call her a mother because she is a mother because she gave birth. If you look up mother in the dictionary, it says woman who gave birth to a child. So I know they, they're very uncomfortable with that term, but I say she is a mother. So they're not even investigating whether the mother is fit to rear that child. They don't care. They just pay her off. And they don't even pay her. They pay the agency and the clinic. So how much do you think she does receive in, in places like India or Ukraine? Yeah. And I mean, the surrogacy proponents will avoid having any sort of conversation about the economic underpinnings of surrogacy when we know that it's wealthy, privileged people who use poor, disadvantaged women for surrogacy, whether it's the North, South, or the Western, Eastern, or whether it's just rich Americans using poor Americans. It's such a willful sort of blindness to the economic exploitation that's happening. Can you talk about yeah. what, you, what you found when you looked into what surrogacy looks like in places like India? Well, it looks kind of what you would think it looked like. You know, yeah. it doesn't surprise you. You don't find like rural women of sub-Saharan Africa paying for surrogates from Manhattan. And also, I think there's this myth about like, Oh, but you know, like you don't understand how it is to be childless. Oh, if that's what it's about, most childless couples are not in the West. And most women who cannot conceive could be cured, you know, if there was just resources. But nobody's interested in that. Nobody's interested in going to poor countries where you get infertile because you might contract an STD, which could be cured, but you don't have the money. Nobody cares about that. So why do we pretend that it's about the plight of childless couples? It's not. This is about the fact that there is a demand. And those who are rich and who can't have children or those who are like gay couples and who don't want to involve a mother because they want to emulate the heterosexual model and they want it to be just them and the baby. Those that have the money and are willing to pay. Of course, there's going to be a market. Like, of course, if, if there's that demand and poverty is the supply, who's going to stop it? We need laws to stop it because it's not going to stop by itself. As soon as you have that demand and you have the supply and you have somebody who's willing to make money off of that and, and invent something like an agency where you put these two together. I mean, of course, it's going to happen. Like anything can be bought and sold in this world. What I find cynical is that all of a sudden there are these people and intellectuals that defend it and invent all these arguments. So we know it's just about a market. That's right. Uh, speaking of, in Sweden, it's illegal, yeah? To well, actually, we don't syndicate. have a law yet because it's so new that we haven't even, you know, laws haven't even caught up. A couple of years ago, we had an investigation like a state inquiry where it was suggested that we should just ban it. And I wrote an article in The Guardian about it because it looked like Sweden was about to ban it. But it never actually passed because it wasn't voted on in the parliament. And now there is this other inquiry which suggests not legalizing it in Sweden, but to make it easier for couples to do it abroad. And the way they formulate it is to say, well, you know, we need to make sure those kids don't end up in a limbo because when they're born in places like Ukraine, they will be Ukrainian citizens and we don't want them to be stuck there. So we should just provide them with Swedish passports immediately and help them 
Whereas we know that this is just the first step to creating a legal market of human trafficking. And, and I think it's so ironic that it happens at the same time that there's this humongous scandal that's being uncovered about Swedish couples that bought children from Chile in the 70s during the Pinochet time. And it turns out they were kidnapped from political opponents and they were kidnapped from poor women. And they were basically sold to Swedish couples who thought they were helping an orphan. And it turns out there's like thousands of kids that were kidnapped. I didn't know that. And now, you know, we're going to go there again in a different way and say we don't know anything. Yeah. But so (laughs) at least Sweden is grappling with it. And I take it that there aren't enough Swedish women who are stepping up to be surrogates. No, no, no. So there's not a market in that. There are several European countries where it is out and out illegal. So the citizens of those countries must hold themselves in higher regard then. Uh, that they themselves don't want to be surrogates, but it's okay to go to a poor country or poor women to ask them to be surrogates. Yeah, that's basically what they think. I think also Sweden is a small country. Like the thing is, if you would have surrogacy in Sweden, like the surrogate would be too close. And I think a lot of intended parents, what they want is for the surrogate to be so far away so she can't just suddenly appear on your doorstep like I want to see my child or I change my mind or something. You know, if you go to India, like she probably won't even know your name and she won't know even in what country you are. So you're safe with the baby. Like there's no way the mother's going to start a custody battle. In Sweden, she might give an interview to a newspaper when the kid is two and say, oh, I changed my mind. Where's my baby? You know, and there you have a scandal. Women have more, just more power also overall. Yeah. I mean, who knows? We might have surrogacy here in like 50 years if nobody stops it. Yeah, we have it here. It's legal here, but we have a phenomenon where we have wealthy people from places like China and Malaysia and Mm -hmm. other places who come and use lower class American women to bear their children. So it kind of flows Always. And there's also another very unsettling aspect about this, which nobody talks about. And it's the fact that this is the perfect market for pedophiles. I mean, come on, think about it. Yeah. If you're like a single man, you know, and you want access to kids. I mean, there's no other way you can just find kids like that and get sole custody. Like you're not allowed to adopt because generally single men are not allowed to adopt children from anywhere. I mean, if you want your own child, you're going to have to meet a woman, get to know her, convince her to have a child with you. And then convince her to look the other way while you molest the child or just leave the child to you and and, and disappear. I mean, that's very much work. Now, he can go to any surrogacy clinic and just pay. And he's going to have as many kids as he wants. You know, why hasn't nobody thought of this? We're so naive. I mean, why would a single man like this Japanese guy who bought, I think it was 18 children from different surrogacy clinics. I mean, why would he do that? Or he could just be crazy. I don't know. But I mean, or it could be something else. I'm not saying about him in particular, but I do know there has been cases with convicted pedophiles here in Sweden that have bought kids through surrogacy. They weren't convicted pedophiles like all these kids, but they were convicted pedophiles because they were working as doctors. Like, what do you call a doctor for children? Like a pediatrician. Exactly. And he was convicted of molesting those kids that came to his clinic. And it also came up that he had also bought kids from surrogacy, but now he's in jail. So I think his father's taking care of those kids. I mean, it's all a big mess. Wow. And these are foreseeable, you know, very foreseeable catastrophes. Like if you create a market in babies, who's going to buy them? I mean, come on. Yeah. Think about it. Yeah. According to the media, no, no, no. It's all these great couples. And he is a doctor and she is a housewife and they're just waiting to have a child and they just can't conceive. And, you know, 
they would do anything for that child. I mean, that's like the narrative. Like, so the media is to blame as well in this because they're interviewing all these like famous couples and they paint a rosy picture of surrogacy. I just think that when you make a baby a product or when you make a, a surrogate a product and you cut the natural human bond that's in place, then it all kind of loses value. You can just use people, babies, mothers as things. And you're also creating a kind of bind, which makes it very difficult for the kids going through surrogacy to ever speak up because the argument against them would be if they spoke up against it once they're older would be, well, you know, if it weren't for surrogacy, you wouldn't even be born. How can they ever oppose surrogacy? Because that's why they are alive. But I mean, how would it feel to know that you're alive because somebody made a transaction and that you've never met your mother? And the idea that you make this division between the biological mother who supplies the genetic material and the mother that bears the child. And how did we get to a place where the mother that bears the child is completely meaningless? Yeah, well, it's funny because when it comes to egg donation, they don't look at it like that at all. Like say there is a woman who actually can go through with a pregnancy, but her eggs don't work. So, you know, she would buy an egg or get egg donation from somewhere. And then there's no question that she's the mother. Then they say, oh, it's the act of pregnancy that makes you into a mother. Okay. But when it comes to surrogacy, no, no, no. That's just carrying a baby. That's just, you know, a service. That's nothing. So, and you also look at these philosophers who love fragmenting women into different pieces, you know, and they would say, oh, now you don't even know what a mother is anymore because you have the egg donor, you have the surrogate, and then you have the mother who's actually taking care of the child. So motherhood now, it's not an entity anymore. And you can just tell they love it because they're so jealous of something they could never do because they could never be pregnant, these male philosophers. So they love for it to be destroyed and for mother to mean nothing. You do talk about also the idea of a fetus that's independent from a mother and that it's a kind of foundational patriarchal idea that's long been used. And we see it in the abortion debate and it's used to attack women kind of on all levels to sort of separate the fetus from the mother as if they're not indivisible. Can you talk a little bit about? Yeah, well, basically, you know, the fetus has always had a bigger value than the mother because the fetus could be male, of course, you know, and they've always been kind of irritated by the fact that the mother has power over the fetus because it's in her. Like, again, these philosophers would say, you know, oh, we hope that in the future you can actually produce kids in laboratories like an artificial uterus. That's transparent. So you can actually see what's happening. And they're like, you know, that would be so much safer because then you could see that the fetus at any time and it wouldn't be there in the dark, but nobody knows what's happening. So they're really dreaming of this because that would be taking away women's power in a sense. And a lot of feminists dreamed about this because that would also take away the basis of women's oppression. But anyway, so about the fetus like being viewed as, as a thing of its own, well, this is very visible in surrogacy as well, because of course. They don't want her. What they want is the baby that she's carrying. So the problem is just that the fetus is inside of her. And if they want to control the fetus, they have to control her. So then again, that's why you see all these contracts that stipulate what she can and what she can't do. Because if they want to own the fetus, they own her. And that's why I think any legislation that separates mother and fetus and takes away the power from the pregnant woman to decide about herself you know, is very anti-woman. You do go into a little bit about the reasons why women put themselves 
through this. I mean, the economic reality, I think, kind of overshadows everything. But did you find other reasons why why women choose to be surrogates? Yeah, overriding, of course, is, is poverty or like the need of money somehow. If it weren't for that, like we would have very few cases of surrogacy. But then again, there are women who do it because they want to feel good about themselves. They want to help someone. They really feel like it gives them value to help somebody else. And this is painted as a great thing. Like, look how altruistic they are, like how generous they are. Isn't this a better alternative than, you know, some poor person doing it for money? I think this is the worst. I think encouraging women to be so selfless that they go through pregnancy, which is so hard on a person, to go through all that for nothing. You don't even get a dime and you don't even get a baby. You get nothing. You get just like an email saying thank you and maybe some flowers. I think that's awful. I really think that if you view women like this, like our role is to be altruist and generous and just help others. You know, this is so dangerous. And I saw there was a movie by the Swedish director. It's called For Somebody Else. And it documents a couple of women in the States that are going through surrogacy. And one of them is doing it actually not for money. She wanted to help this woman. And she said, yes. But as she's going through it, I mean, things just get worse and worse and worse and worse. Because the woman whom she wanted to help is just monitoring her constantly, telling her what she can't do. She can't breastfeed her own babies. And she's taking over her life. And this woman who's going to be a surrogate, it turns out she has no time for her own family. She has no time for her own kids anymore because everything is about the surrogacy project. And she starts to regret it. And you can tell she's like struggling with the feelings of wanting to be nice which I think so many women have, like, I just want it to be nice. And you're just trying so hard for somebody else, like to help that person. And I think this is a big trap for women in all walks of life, whether it's about love or whether it's about money or whether it's about family, you know, you just want to be nice. I don't think this should be encouraged. I agree. Especially seeing as how men are conditioned to do the opposite. I think it's a very problematic dynamic for women. At the end of your book, you kind of conclude with something that just made me really sad to think about. I'm just going to read it. Because the need to separate is so strong. The whore may not become pregnant. The surrogate may not have sex. Women all over the world are denied their complete humanity. We're limited, imprisoned, turned off, and made numb. And I think that's really profound. It's like, obviously, I've never been a surrogate. I've never been a prostitute. But I do feel the effects of what happens to womanhood as a political group that I belong to. And I do feel that those emotions, as it's happening to others, empathy, if you will, were in the same boat. We're limited in prison, turned off and made numb. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think that's why when I realized I was going to write a book about surrogacy and prostitution, I realized the kind of worn out expression, there are two sides of the same coin. I actually think they are very much a reflection of patriarchal religion and morality because it separates women into two groups. So there's one that you have sex with, but you don't have kids with them. And then there's one that you have kids with, but you don't sleep with them. And historically, well, you would have to sleep with them anyway if they were your wife. Otherwise, you couldn't have kids with them. But now you don't anymore. So you have this group who are just made to have kids, but they may not have sex. Because if you have sex with a surrogate, all of a sudden you're being unfaithful to your husband or your wife. So you don't cross that line. On the other hand, if you accept a child born through prostitution, you know, you're crossing that line. And why this division? Women are being divided. But this division reflects a kind of hypocrisy in men. 
because men's mentality is divided because they cannot look at a woman and see a sex partner who's passionate, who's wild in bed at the same time as seeing, you know, a mother figure. For the patriarchal man, that's really complicated. And the sad thing is that we're suffering the consequences of this because we're made into one and the other. I wanted to, before we go on, what's the title going to be for Om Shona's Existence? Well, I'm hoping now that it's going to be published in English. If somebody's listening to this and owns a publishing house, they can just contact me. It's going to be published in Spain in a month. And I think it's going to keep the same title. So it would be on the existence of sex, reflections on the new definition of woman. Oh, great. What uh, prompted you to write this book right now? Well, I think it's just a thought that like was a kind of footnote in my body of work. And then it just grew bigger and bigger. And all of a sudden I was seeing it everywhere. And when you see something everywhere, you're like, it's becoming one of the big feminist debates. And it wasn't before. And it's something that's often referred to as the trans debate or transgender. But I don't think really it has to do with that. I think it has to do with the new definition of sex, which mainly affects women, where we're told that your sex is not your actual biological sex, but it's a personality, a kind of personality that you have. And it's something that you feel. It's whoever you identify with. And so we have like a reversal of sex and gender. We used to say that sex is biological, whereas gender is a cultural construct. But now we say that all of a sudden, it's the opposite. The body doesn't exist. It's a cultural construct. You're assigned a sex when you're born as if there wasn't any sex, as if that didn't really exist, you know, whether as your gender is innate, you're born with it, it's real, it's who you are. So I thought, what is going on here? You know, I have to explore this. I have to know what this means. What is really happening? Because again, it's a little like the prostitution debate. You have all this fluff and you have to kind of go through that fluff to see what's really happening. And the background, like Mary Daly would say, because you have the foreground and the background. You have the foreground, there's all this rhetoric, which is trying to make you look a certain direction. And it's trying to make you look at this as, oh, you know, first it was the women, and then it was the homosexuals, and then it was the workers, and so on. And now it's the trans people. Everybody's going through a liberation. So we're having a liberation here. This is great. Everybody's asking, what is gender? We're all finding out that gender is a spectrum. It's not as binary as we thought. Oh, this is great. You know, a new world. But, you know, if you look at the background, there's something else happening. And I think what is happening is that we're losing the term woman as a political subject. And if we lose that, it will be very difficult to have a woman's movement. Yeah. I think that the thing that would tip you off that it's about something else is that feminists have become public enemy number one of transgender rights. What do you think of that phenomena about the attacks on? high-profile feminists. Yeah, well, I think that's kind of a very intelligent way to go about it. Because as I write in my book, if you would look up the word woman in historical archives, like you would go back to even before the Bible, look at classical texts from the Arabic world, from Greece, from India, and go onwards to classical biblical texts and scientific texts and go up until like the 17th or 18th century. What you would find is the woman is something that men define what it is and something they don't hold in very high regard. Like woman is just half a man. Woman has no soul. Woman is just inferior. Man is great. Basically, if you sum it up, it's that. Then all of a sudden you have something happening. All of a sudden women start to write and women start to reclaim that word. 
And all of a sudden the word means something else. Like go from the like 17th, 18th century till today, you have women being redefined as a politically oppressed subject with a right to protest and to revolt and with a right to speak for herself. So woman now is, is a word to be proud of. If I say I'm a woman, it doesn't mean I'm inferior. It means listen to me because I've been oppressed. So woman now has power. So if you were to put women down, like how would you do it? You know, would you go back again, like the prostitution debate? Would you use the old rhetoric? Would you say, no, you're just inferior? No, because that doesn't work anymore. That doesn't have power. If some man comes to me and says, oh, but you're inferior, like men are so much better. I would laugh at him. That doesn't oppress us anymore. So what they've done, and I'm not saying this is like three guys with cigars in a room, like thinking of a conspiracy. I'm saying this is an organic process that happens because it works and it keeps on circulating because it's efficient. What happens is that instead of saying woman is inferior, they say, no, actually woman is privileged because woman now is called cis woman. And cis woman means that you're privileged because you never had to think of your gender because you never felt like you didn't fit in because you never felt like you were born in the wrong body. You've just taken it for granted all your life that you're a woman, so you know nothing. And you also thought that feminism was for you. It's not for you. It's for the women that had to fight to become women. Those who happen to be born male. So now you need to sit down and you need to step back because there's other people who are much more oppressed than you as women. Right. So there is another way to kind of put women down. And it's so much more efficient because if you're born and raised with the idea that you're an oppressed being, the last thing you want to do is oppress somebody else. So if somebody would tell me like, oh, you're inferior, I would just be like, ha ha, you know, but if somebody tells me, oh, you're oppressing somebody else here, like, oh, really? What did I do? Oh, my God, I don't want to do that. So all of a sudden you get women be like anxious and scared and kind of doubting, like, do I have the right to speak about this? So there is a kind of marriage between the old and the new patriarchy. So whereas women already are kind of insecure of themselves, and then you get this new thing saying that we are privileged and we should shut up. Now it goes hand in hand. Of course, there are so many parts and so many different ingredients in this new narrative. But I think when it, if you sum it up, it's a very efficient way to make women shut up. And it's a very efficient way to distract women from furthering the aims of the women's movement. Because now if you would say woman, they would say, well, we don't even know what that is. Like, that's a politically suspicious term. Why would you even use that? Who do you mean? Do you mean cis women or trans women? And if I would say woman is somebody who's born with, you know, a vagina, and they would just say, no, 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 that's awful. You can't say that. I had a debate with Amnesty International the other day because they are really advocating for the self-ID law here in Sweden, which means that anybody would be able to register as a male or a female. So you would just be able to like click on the internet, like you would change address and you would all of a sudden change sex. Like you wouldn't even have to like do hormone therapy, do anything to your body. So they were saying this is so much easier for trans people because they show their IDs and nobody understands why there is a different gender on the ID than what you see in person. And I said, what you're advocating is, is exactly that. Because if somebody who is like a fully bearded man without doing any surgery, without doing any hormone treatment, would go and change sex to a woman, which is exactly what you're proposing, that would create something weird if he would show his ID. So actually what this law is enabling is not for trans people to change sex because they already can. It's for non-trans people to change sex. And who would that be? And why would they want to do that? What if a biological man, what you have to say nowadays, a biological man, 
So, okay, I said, if a biological man would all of a sudden decide he's a woman and he has the right to do that, and maybe he wants to like go and harass women in a shelter or like in a woman's prison, which has happened here. And then they just said, oh, we are taking away this comment because it's transphobic. And I said, how is it? And they said, you're using the term biological man for a trans woman. And I said, well, if, if I can't say biological man, what then is trans? <sighs> how would you even define trans? How could you comprehend trans if you can't use the word biological? Because then trans doesn't exist because it means somebody who's born with a biological sex and transitions to the other. If there is no such thing as a biological sex, then you can't transition from or to anything. So they don't even understand their own concepts. Like they're trying to just create this kind of like nervousness around words. So all of a sudden you just don't say anything. Mm. That is a very, very contradictory thing, though, in trans ideology that on the one hand, they argue for the liberation from stereotypical gender roles, but they also subscribe and reinforce to those same gender roles in an extremely rigid way. Yeah. To to the point where you do, you know, massive body mutilations to conform towards one or the other. Yeah, it's very confusing. Yeah, um, it's like the thing about gender is a spectrum. You know, if you look at that spectrum, I mean, it's basically nuances of the two different impulse. It's all like the same two gender stereotypes. And then there is like mixtures of them. Absolutely. But also, I mean, what feminists have fought for, I think, is to sort of loosen the stereotypical gender types to allow us free gender expression, to kind yeah. of enjoy the spectrum. And I find trans ideology is the very opposite of that, even though they say they aren't. So, Yeah, and also it's so much about when sex and gender is being defined in the books that I read that advocate for like gender is the real sex and gender is innate. It's it's a lot about uh, clothing. That's basically how they detect gender. They say like a three-year-old boy who, for example, when he's taking a shower, he puts the towel around his head and he says, look at my long hair. That's a girl. He is a girl because he's doing that. So it's very much about these things that we wanted to get away from. And also I find it interesting that all the things that would constitute women's oppression, you know, are just absent from the debate, like women's work, reproduction, women's plight all over the world. Like that's not there. It's like, you are a woman if you like to dress up, but I mean, come on, like how many women in the world even do that? Like most women in the world are farmers and just work hard on the field. So true. And I've also noted and connected to what you just said is that it's really a one-sided struggle at this point for trans women who want to gain entrance to women's spaces, but the same is not true for the reverse where women are trying to sort of invade male space. I find that very telling and curious. wonder what your thoughts are. Yeah, because basically what they're creating is two new categories, like a kind of male category, which is hegemonic, which is exclusive, which is only for men and which is defended by strength and violence and power. And nobody wants to get in because basically the threat of violence is always there. So that's how they defend their territory. Whereas women's space is created as open, tolerant, basically for everyone that doesn't fit into the male category. So our category is a kind of for everyone. It's like the leftover category, whereas the male category is closed. And you can see it in anywhere. You can see it in the prison debate. You can see it in the debate about sports where they've changed the rules around women's sports so that women's sports, now anyone can compete basically if they just lower their testosterone, but not to the level of females. The general level for men 
athletes and non-athletes is like 30 nanomoles per liter of testosterone. The general level for females is two. So the International Olympic Committee put the threshold at 10 for men who want to compete in the female category, which means that they're still way above females. So it's not fair. Like we're not only the second sex, we're second within our own sex. I mean, I don't know who thought about all this, but it's just so, it's just too ironic to be true. So, so true. I've, I've been shaking my head for the last couple of years over this. This is something I've been thinking about too, about the different motivations for women to transition and for men to transitions. I think they have very, very different motivations. What are your thoughts on that? I think when I when I wrote my book, I was very cautious about this because I don't want to oversimplify. You know, we're talking about lots of different individuals. Yeah. I don't want to say, oh, like trans men are like this, trans women are like this, because I want trans men and trans women to be able to read it and say, damn, that's actually accurate. And uh, for that, I had to talk to a lot of people and I had to read a lot of testimonies. And what was striking about what I read and what I heard from women who want to, or girls who want to become boys is they don't actually want to be boys. They just don't want to be girls. Like there was nothing like sexually exciting about wearing male clothing. And it was nothing about wanting to be a man, even have male friends. It wasn't about that. They just didn't want to be seen and thought of as girls and women. Whereas with the men who wanted to be women, it was more like a conscious thing of wanting to be women, but maybe not some aspects even of traditional femininity were not so present in the explanations like, I want to be a better listener. I want to do more of housework. I want to kind of respect women more. I want to loosen my ego. Like none of these things I heard, but you would have, of course, homosexual males who want to be females for some reasons. And then you have heterosexual males who want to be females for other reasons. And I also found that it was the heterosexual males who became trans women that were the most aggressive towards the women's movement and who were the most judging of women who had problems with them being female spaces. And the homosexual males who wanted to become women actually were not mainly interested in female spaces, but more interested in their relationship to heterosexual men and being able to be sexually attractive for heterosexual men. So actually it was more being a woman for men, if you see what I mean. But then again, of course, everyone's different, you know? Yeah, yeah. I read your passage about puberty blockers with interest mm-hmm. because my sister is in public health in Sweden, in youth and sexuality, actually. So I learned that they stopped, very recently stopped the use of puberty blockers. Is that right? In Sweden? Yeah, in one hospital, but it was also the hospital that was most aggressive with those treatments. So it was like a big thing that happened. It was after the UK stopped what they call the Dutch protocol. And the Dutch protocol is basically to create better copies of males and females by starting earlier and before puberty. So you wouldn't have to go through your puberty. You would start before. So you first halt puberty like between nine and 12 years old. And then like, I think it was 16 or something, you go on to cross-sex hormones. And at 18, you have full surgery. So that's the Dutch protocol. And it's been very criticized because it leads to infertility. If you never actually go through puberty and then you go on cross-sex hormones, you never develop the ability to reproduce. And there has been cases where people have changed their mind and they've actually wanted to, to get pregnant and they can't. 
So that's very tragic because what they presented it as was, you know, it's just a pause. You can just pause puberty and whenever you want, you can start again. The only problem is once you do go down that road, if you pause puberty, most of them will go on to cross sex hormones. And that means that you won't be fertile. So when you decide at 10 or 11 or 12 that you're going to call through puberty, you're making the choice never to be pregnant. You will never pick up your kids from kindergarten. You will never see any grandchildren because you won't have any. So for a 12-year-old to make that decision, I think is kind of harsh. It's too early. And they don't present it as such. But really, once you start with puberty blockers, most do go on to cross-sex hormones because you already entered into Project Trans. So whereas your friends are going to develop and they're going to get beard and they're going to get breasts, you won't. And I think they, they realize that. So they've stopped that treatment at one hospital. And now, of course, so many people are pissed off about it and saying, no, 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 how can you do this? Trans youth is dying waiting for the treatment, which also has been proven to be not true, actually. Yeah, you want to go into that also? It started in the U.S. because you have to think about that in the U.S. everything is profit because they don't have this public health care that we do in Sweden. So there are a lot of doctors there that kind of found in gender identity clinics and got really rich off of that and did TED Talks and so on. And they started telling parents who came with like, you know, a young kid whom they were going to put on puberty blockers that you need to think that you can either have grandkids or you won't have a kid at all because they're going to be dead. Because if you don't give them this treatment, they're going to commit suicide. I mean, that's exact quote from one of these doctors. So after that, it came to Sweden and the doctors here were saying the same thing. And it became like a general truth that they even made its way into like a state investigation about trans care, where they said that there's, it's so common that people die waiting for the treatment. And when they were asked by this investigative journalist how many people have committed suicide, they found out it wasn't true. They didn't have a single example of somebody committing suicide because they were waiting for treatment and didn't get it. So I think that's very crucial to this debate, how they have scared us into adopting a kind of protocol that is not scientifically sound and proven because they say it saves lives. Yeah, what can be scarier for a parent than to be faced with your your child committing suicide because they have some sort of internal struggle that you can't help them with? Yeah, um, and I mean, a lot of kids, especially like if you get into subculture, you think, well, everything's about this. I must have this. I mean, who hasn't been a teenager and been so adamant about something that you need to do or need to have now or you're going to die? Like, this is your mentality. But the difference with this is that the whole system, like the state and the media and the big organizations and the psychologists are all on board with this saying like, yeah, if you just think you're a guy, go ahead, do this treatment, no problem. And nobody's telling you about the side effects. Nobody's telling you, well, hold on, think it's not too late. You can wait, you can see what you feel. I think they're presenting it like being allies. And I think that's so cruel because once these kids have gone through with the treatment and once you've taken your breasts off and you don't have breasts anymore, so you will never breastfeed and your voice is already lower and maybe you already sound like a man and then you're all alone. Where is the whole society that cheered for you? Are they really there once you start having doubts? I'm feeling like, was this really right for me? You're ostracized from the community. You called a traitor. You would never really trans and you're really alone. I just find this so cynical. Like they're, you know, it's trans this, trans that, trans everything. And at the end of the day, they're using trans people as like an avant-garde for a movement that has nothing to do with trans people. 
and that has everything to do with negotiating the new positions of men and women in the society of tomorrow. But they don't really care about trans people. Because if they did, they wouldn't be trying out treatments that aren't even well-researched and that have side effects like infertility, effects on bone density, you know, effects on IQ, effects on all these things in your body. Would they really be doing that? And like, what are they even giving to trans people except this like position on a pedestal, which is only theoretical anyway, because you can't eat it and you can't live with it. And it's only a narrative. But what are they really giving to trans people? What they're telling them is you're not okay the way you are. You have to change. So we're giving you just medical things. We're giving you hormones. We're giving you operations. We're telling you that you would be much better off without your breasts. You're not okay the way you are. So if a young girl is growing up thinking that like, oh, I like soccer. I like boxing. I don't want to have long hair. I don't feel like a girl. Today, they're not telling her you're good the way you are. Maybe you're just a lesbian or maybe you're not. And just be happy with yourself. That's just another way of being a woman. And you're still a woman. You're as much a woman as somebody else. They're not telling you that. They're telling you, you are wrong. You need to change. And once you've changed, we're all going to love you because you're going to be a trans person and we all love trans people. You're great. It's really cynical. That's really the message they're sending to young people. And if you change your mind, we won't be there for you. I think the same way they treat like survivors of prostitution, the same way they treat deep transitioners. When I started writing about prostitution, as I told you, there were very few survivors of prostitution that were speaking publicly. The only people that would speak publicly about prostitution would be like sex work lobbyists who they would take around to different conferences and say, look, is a real sex worker. She thinks this industry is great. And everybody's like, wow, we have to listen to sex workers. You, you should just shut up because you're just feminist, you know, nothing like listen to sex workers. Okay, then the survivors came out. Now, who wanted to listen to sex workers? Hmm. All of a sudden, like everybody was ignoring them. Like the whole sex work lobby, all of a sudden, was not really about listening to sex workers at the end of the day because the survivors who did know prostitution inside out were not worth being listened to. So the same thing is happening now that we're having this listen to trans people. They know what it's about. They really suffered in their own skin. Okay, so then we have the detransitioners coming out saying like, okay, this is my experience. All of a sudden, no, 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 we don't listen to you. So I think it's just a host, like that argument, listen to this, listen to that. It's actually just using somebody else as a microphone for what you wanted to say anyway. So true. So true. Well, I wanted to thank you so much for this awesome, awesome conversation. Thank you for having me. It was great talking to you. And really, really thanks for the invitation. Thank you for listening to Subject to Power. You can find the show online at subjecttopower.com or subscribe from wherever you get your podcasts. I would love to hear your thoughts and comments, so please drop a note on the website or even better, take a moment to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Subject to Power is written, hosted, and produced by me, El Kamihira. Audio engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art by B. Johnson and the music is by Beware of Darkness. Mm-hmm.